Okay, Romans part 29. So 9, 10, 11, right? Romans 9, 10, 11 are Paul basically trying to answer the question of what about the Jews, right? The question is, since can, remember for 1 through 8, Paul is reminding the Romans all the benefits and wonderful things that God has given them. He has justified them. He's sanctifying them. He will glorify them. All these spiritual blessings and physical blessings and all these things. And so the question would come, well, can we believe that? Can we trust that? Because look at the Jews, basically, right? The Jews have rejected their Messiah, and you promised all these wonderful things to them. Can we believe the promises you're giving us, justification, sanctification, glorification, if the Jews are in the state that they are, right? So Paul's sort of asking that question, what about the Jews? And so as we've been going through that, um, we talked about why they rejected their Messiah, right? They, they, how did they believe that they could attain righteousness? Does anybody remember that? How did the Jews... Through, through the law. Through the law, right? They, they were thinking and they were taught that since they had the law, they could get righteousness by obeying the law. It didn't have anything to do with faith. It only had to do with following the law, right? And that's how most religions are, following some kind of law, some kind of ordinance. Um, and even in Christianity, we can get bogged down with certain things that we think have to be, right? Um, and so they weren't ready mentally, spiritually, to even receive Christ. So when Christ came saying, no, I'm telling you the law is not for that. I'm telling you you have to actually be more righteous than the Pharisees to obtain righteousness. They didn't like that. They were not ready for that. And especially the leaders, they said, well, don't go changing our plans on us. You know, we're the ones in control here. Don't tell us what to do either, right? And so they were kind of primed for that. But we learned that that was God's plan, right? God's plan was for them to reject their Messiah. And why? Why was that God's plan? Is a question I'm asking you. <laughs> so that we, we Gentiles can come to so we could be put in, right? So there's a there's there's a catch twenty two in the sense that that we are very grateful that the Jews had it all, right? So what benefit is there being a Jew? And much in every way, right? He lists all these things, the covenants, all of Scripture was given to the Jews. All the authors of the Scripture are the, are to, are by Jews. Jesus was a Jew, right? And so we get to come in and partake of their blessings that they had been promised to them, right? So they had the stumbling, and the stumbling was not surprising to God. We read about how that in Isaiah and in Psalms um, that there, God said, "There's going. To, I'm going to lay in Zion a stumbling block, right? I'm going to lay there, and you're going to fall and stumble over it, right?" And so that's that was said before, right? And so then we start seeing how they rejected him, and they are so God was. God was not at fault is basically what Paul's whole premise is. He's going to say, God is not the reason why Israel rejected their Messiah, right? Although he elected them to be his people, and although he knew that they would reject their Messiah, they can't lay the blame on him because they were ignorant of their calling. And God goes back, or Paul goes back and talks about how God told them through the prophets in their Old Testament scriptures that 
the Gentiles would come in for one, but they also had a, a responsibility. They were supposed to be priests to the world, right? We talked about la that last time, how he says, I'm calling you to be a kingdom of priests to me. So they had the tribe of Levi, which was the, 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 the priests to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel itself was to be a kingdom of priests to the world, right? And so they failed on that part. And so they had an, they were ignorance of those things, right? They had an ignorance of the way of salvation, which we talked about, which was by faith, because they looked at it, they looked at salvation was by obtaining righteousness through following the law. And then they had an, an ignorance of what worldwide salvation would look like. Who was going to come into the fold? Remember, they thought also that in order to be saved, you'd have to become a Jew, basically, right? And they would circumcise you at an old, at a, you know, an older age, and they'd make sure that you had to follow all the Mosaic law. So they were ignorant of the way of salvation, which was always by faith through grace, right? And they were ignorant of the application of salvation to the Gentiles. And so as a result, they were ignorant of preaching the gospel, right? That was what we talked about last week, how you know, there's not going to be faith among the Gentiles without sending, right? If you're sent to preach, the preaching is what you hear, the hearing is what causes you to believe, right? So there was no sending, there was no preaching, there was no, therefore no hearing, and therefore no believing. So they failed to preach the gospel, even though they were required or responsible for that. Um, and so they failed to give it to the Gentiles, because we know that belief comes by hearing the word of God. Um, and indeed, Paul is making the case, they knew the gospel, they heard the gospel, and he uses Old Testament scriptures to ensure or to prove that they knew it, that this wasn't a new thing, that they would, couldn't hold themselves accountable to it, right? Because um, the Old Testament foretold that the Gentiles would receive the Messiah. And that's actually where we're going to pick back up is uh, verse 19 and 20 of chapter 10. And that's where we're learning in the process of learning about how they, they knew um, salvation would come to the Gentiles. Um, so if someone would read verse, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. Okay, do we see that there, right? But, so he's asking, did Israel not understand their responsibility? Did Israel not understand they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests? That they were supposed to go spread the gospel? The gospel was faith in God would give you salvation, and works would follow, right? Works would follow, but faith is what initiates salvation, justification. What does he say? I will make you, speaking to Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Who are those that are not a nation? The Gentiles. Even more so, the church, right? We, we are a body of believers throughout the whole world, but we are not a nation, right? We are a people, right? We are fool, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. 
So then Isaiah is so bold as to say, verse 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, right? So those are the Gentiles, right? So this is, this is foretold in Isaiah. So the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these guys knew that there was a, going to be a period of time when salvation would be sent out to the Gentiles. And this, this salvation to the Gentiles would provoke what? Make you angry, right? It says in verse 19, I will make you a jealous, jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. So there's provocation to jealousy and provocation to angry, being angry, right? They're angry. Why, why would they be angry? The Jews. Or jealous. Any idea? Well, does it go back to salvation? Righteousness, right? They thought that they were God's chosen people, right. that they had all the blessings, they had all these things that God only worked through them, and all of a sudden he's now working through an un a nation of people that didn't even care to ask for him, right? Didn't even want to follow him. I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me, right? There's some, there's some prodigal son aspects there right like the other son the other son is like well why are you giving him all this stuff you know you promised me this there's some there's some of that there right so he's saying that that uh, salvation would be a point of jealousy between jews and gentiles and so he quotes deuteronomy 32 21b and that's what this 19 and 20 is a quote. Third, deuteronomy is from uh, it's deuteronomy and isaiah but deuteronomy 32 21b says and I will move them to jealousy with those that are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So who wrote Deuteronomy? Moses, right? So this is all the way back in the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, when he's talking, you know, he's telling them there's going to be a time when God is going to move the nation of Israel to jealousy because he's going to go to a, another the group of people outside of the Jews, right? <clears throat> um, so like I said, the, that group is the church, the body of Christ. It, when did the body of Christ come into existence? Acts. Acts 2, right? Acts 2. Um, so like I said, we're all the church is composed of all races, all ethnicities, all nationalities, all, all everybody, right? Male, female, Greek, Jew, doesn't matter. The church is made up of that from all over the place. Um, in chapter 11, we're going to see how... how well, Paul will discuss more how the church provokes the Jews to jealousy, and that will be in chapter 11. Um, and then back in verse 20, when it says, Then Isaiah is so bold to say, he's quoting Isaiah 65, 1, and God declared, it says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, Here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So that that verse was back in Isaiah, right? What Isaiah was like a thousand years before this time that, Ro that Paul was talking to the Romans. Um, so that salvation message would go out to every nation and it would be received by Gentiles among all the nations. Um, so the message that the Jewish people were rejecting, the Gentiles were receiving. Right? Are we seeing that difference, right? And that rejection and that acceptance is provoking the Jews 
to jealousy and anger, right? Um, And then read verse 21. This is another quotation from the Old Testament. So if we read verse uh, 10.21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Okay, so Paul is um, quoting verse 2 of Isaiah 65. The previous one was Isaiah 65.1. This is now Isaiah 65.2. And Isaiah 65.2 says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto rebellious people that walk in a way that is not good after their own thoughts. So when, when Israel rejected Christ as their Messiah, right? They basically rejected God, right? They rejected God's provision for salvation, God's provision for righteousness, God's provision for for communion, fellowship, walking with him. Um, But as Isaiah is showing and as Paul is proving, God's attitude towards his people was still one of love, right? All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient contrary people. So he's always there willing to receive them if they would just stop rejecting him, basically, right? So it's always one of love. He continually keeps his hands open, and anytime Israel wants to respond to him, he would accept her, right? So even though Israel has rejected God's provision, he's still waiting to receive Israel. But it's got to always be on his terms, right? Everything we do is on his terms, not on their terms. Okay, we, we get... That? Mm -hmm. Chapter 10? Chapter 10? Okay, so now we're going to move on to chapter 11. So, like we said, chapter 9, um, chapter 11 is going to talk about the comfort, right? The comfort of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. What's going to happen? Where where can we find some consolation in this situation they're in? They're in a bad situation. They've rejected the Messiah. They're being provoked to jealousy and anger because the Gentiles are receiving them. So now Paul gives some comfort of their rejection. So chapter 9 was, was Paul discussing how um, God's will was not hindered because the Jews rejected their Messiah. He, in fact, foreordained it, right? Prophetically foreordained it, knowing that the people of Israel would reject it. So there was some divine sovereignty in chapter 9. And, but in chapter 10, we talked about how there's, they're, they're responsible because they didn't follow their calling, right? Their their priestliness, their their mission. They didn't follow that too. So chapter nine was God's sovereignty. I'm saying God was not surprised. He knew this was going to happen. He told them all about it before. He knew that was going to happen. And it's in chapter ten was, but you're not without excuse because you also knew that this was going to go out to the Gentiles. You knew that salvation was by grace through faith alone, right? So he has Paul is making the case that God has every right to deal with Israel in a severe way, right? In a severe way. But he's yet, Paul, has yet to answer the question of can God be trusted to fulfill his promises, right? That's basically the whole question of 19 11. Like I said, all these blessings and things that God has promised the church and Israel, can we as Gentile believers trust God's promises since Israel rejected them? That's still the question kind of brewing in the minds of some of, of you know a critic or somebody thinking critically about it. So in this chapter, he's finally going to answer that question, right? He's going to show that God is moving to bring salvation to both man in general, but Israel 
particularly or specifically, right? That's where he's going to sort of go with this chapter is that he's, God is moving. This is not a plan B, right? This is not a, oh my gosh, what happened? Let me, let me figure out what to do now, right? He had ordained all these things to happen. So he's going to offer some comfort. God has not forgotten his people and his promises to them. So, one, the rejection of the Messiah is not total. And that's going to cover 1 through 10 of chapter 11. Um, so, you know, he's, he may be, oh, Paul may be aware that the people in Rome are saying, has God rejected his people, the people of Israel, right? The Jewish, has God rejected his people? And if you believe that the church has replaced Israel, what would you say today? If you believed in what we call replacement theology, where the church has taken over all of the blessings of Israel that God gave Israel, would you say today that God has rejected his people? You would, right? Yeah. You would say that because you, you have this belief from misinterpreting scripture, I would say, that, that all of the blessings and covenants and, and, and good things have been given to the church and rejected by Israel, right? So that was the question that Paul is answering the Romans. Has God rejected his people? And if you believe that the church replaced Israel, then you would say, yes, God did reject his people. Oh, boo-hoo, you know, whatever. They rejected him. Um, but what does Paul, what did Paul say in verse 1a? So read verse 1a of chapter 11. By no means, right? And that's not the first time we've heard by no means, right? God forbid, may it never be. That's that strong word that Paul uses. So he's asking, has God rejected his people? Since they rejected him, has he rejected them, right? And he says, by no means, may it never be. God forbid, right? And so that actually connects with verse 21 of chapter 10, Romans 10, 21. Because God says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Right? It's that same concept. Even though they are disobedient and contrary to me, my hands are always open to them. Right? So even though they rejected me, I have not rejected them. My hands are always open. Right? They were in a state of unbelief and disobedience. They're still in a state of unbelief and disobedience to this day. And they've always been since that time. Right? So the answer again is decisive, by no means, God forbid, may it never be. <clears throat> yes? We always get so confused. Um, because we just said he did reject them because he rejected them because of the church. But then now we're saying, because I was going to say, I didn't think he did because I didn't think God works that way. No, there's, there's a... Get right, and I understand. <laughs> I probably I might have misspoke. There's a false teaching in churches today that say that the church's promises have taken all of Israel's blessings and covenants. That all the covenants of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the seed, you know, land seed worldwide blessing, all those things that were given specifically to Israel, unconditional blessings, unconditional covenants, meaning that. God would do all the work. God would do all the things to make them happen. The new covenant is one of them. Um, there's a false teaching in the Christendom today that says that the church now takes over all those things. 
that Israel is forgotten. We don't need to worry about Israel. They rejected God, so they're nothing. They're just another people group. And so that's the question that Paul is asking. What then, what about Israel? Has God rejected him? And my question to the group was, if you believe that false teaching of replacement theology, then you would believe that God has rejected his people. But we don't believe that. We believe the Bible, clearly, we're making the case very clearly that the Bible teaches, no, God has not rejected his people. Is that clear, clear that up? So no, God has not, yes. <laughs> and if you do believe that way of theology that sets the trajectory for even in the end times and prophecy, it just, it doesn't just mean, oh, you believe it, you know, in these verses in the Old Testament, but if you believe that, then that sets your mindset. Well, that's what I, it, it would be like, how do I trust him? Because he's, that's a very, that's the question that's exactly what Paul is asking can you trust God if he if God really rejected his people you'd have a basis to say I don't know if I can trust your promises because you rejected the people you promised before right does that make sense yes. yeah so yeah. that's the that's the question that Paul is having to answer remember we talked about uh, one chapters one through eight was he justified you, he sanctified you, he glorified you, and in chapters twelve through sixteen of Romans, he's going to say, okay, now that you've been justified, are being sanctified, and will be glorified, how do you live? So twelve through sixteen is a practical application of one through eight, but nine, ten, eleven are saying, well, can you really believe that those things are true if God, if the people of God rejected him, did he reject him? So Paul is having to interject this three-chapter little side note to make sure that his audience knows that God is faithful and that God has not forgotten Israel and the promises to Israel have not been rejected. And so therefore, you can believe chapters 1 through 8. Right? That's kind of the case he's making. Well, and that's, to me, that's the comfort. And that's the comfort of embracing Christianity is because no matter how much we falter, as long as we come to God honestly and confess our, our, our transgressions, that he is a forgiving God. That's what appeals to me so much about, that's why I left Catholicism because I felt so, it was so stringent where now I'm worshiping a God that I see him as just benevolent, kind, forgiving. And as long as I really truly mean it, and I'm working hard on it, because one of the most difficult things as a new Christian is to stop the judgment of other people that whose behavior you don't condone. Mm -hmm. And it comes up every day. And I'm realizing how it's not a conscious thing. Something happens and it just automatically happens. And I find myself turning to God <laughs> he would have been worn out already by, by others. <laughs> I make so many judgments, and I, I really am working hard on it. So that had me a little confused, but it, just like what Jerry said, what's the point of believing if he's not going to be with you the whole way, the whole entire way? And that's 
the difficult part, I think, in some friends of ours that now see as John is John and I as being kind of different. Um, and I can't explain it. Well, we are different. <laughs> it's, it's hard to explain when they ask me, like, why do you believe these things? And I say, I don't, I can't explain it to you. I just, it's in here. I just do. Something, something happened. Something was transformed inside of me that I knew something in my life was missing and now it's there and even though I feel pain and I, I feel worried I know that God will carry me through I just know it I just know it but I can't I can't tell somebody if somebody walked in the door that was a non-believer I wouldn't be able to tell them it's because of A, B, C, or D. I just believe it. And, but that's why we're learning about Romans, right? Romans is teaching us why we believe and what we, what we should rightly believe. And studying scripture is that way to steal that into you, to firmly found, ground you to the reasons of what you say you feel. You feel salvation. You feel being saved. You understand God's faithfulness in your heart, and now you're just sort of moving your heart to your brain to say, well, why? And that's because he's telling you, I've done all these things. You know, Romans chapter 8 is all about Paul telling you, God loves you. That's really the whole thing, right? Nothing can separate you from what? The love of God. No height, nor depth, nor left, right, up, down, sideways, anything. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Not even a rejection can separate you from the love of God. And that's what Paul is saying about Israel. Even though they rejected him, God's arms are open to them. They rejected him, so they go and they suffer the consequences of rejecting him. But once you are saved... What can take you out of his hands? Nothing. Can you take yourself out of his hands? No. Nothing can take you out of his hands. He, he's making the point, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You ought to be convinced that he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? And so this is when, when we say the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love, right? We have faith. We have faith that we're sanctified, we're justified, we're going to be glorified. But when we see him, do we still have to have faith? No. We don't have to have hope of a future glorification. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be in with him. So we're already proving our salvation, our sanctification. The only thing that remains is love. His love for us, our love for him. Love is the greatest of all things. And so he's proving that that he is love, he is faithful, he can be trusted. And so what should we do? And that's what chapter 12 starts out with. It starts out with, now that you have all these wonderful mercies and, and great things, what should you do? And then he says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, because that's the only reasonable thing you can do. You can't, you can't, pay him back. You can't earn it back. You can't demand. You can't do nothing. All you can do is say, okay, Lord, here I am. Like Isaiah says, Lord, here I am. Send me. I, okay. I believe you. you know? Now help me, help me go. 
and, and he helps you go and he does all the work for you. That's such a fat, that's your, your journey at this time is what we all go through, right? We all have gone through and the, that's, that's the value and benefit of church. The value and benefit of church is bearing one another's burdens and discussing and learning and growing and exhorting and encouraging one another and using our gifts to help others in this journey for sure. You're still saved without going to church, but you're not going to grow like you would, right? You're not going to, like we've said before, uh, every single person that is saved has a spiritual gift, at least one. But the gift is not for you. The gift is through you, right? The gift is you have this spiritual gift, whatever it might be, and God is using you to bless others with it. So it's imperative for you to understand that you have a gift. I'm not going to say it's imperative that you understand what your gift is, because you're just going to naturally do whatever comes to you, right? If you, and there, this is a whole side tangent, but a, a spiritual gift is very valuable, but sometimes we might get caught and say, well, that's not my gift. My gift is this, so I'm only going to do this, right? And because I'm not gifted in that, I'm not going to do that. But So I would say, don't worry about exactly what your spiritual gift is. Just know that you have a gift, and it's your responsibility to give to others, right? Let God work through you. Okay, <laughs> very, very good, very, that's an excellent, but again, what you're experiencing, we all experience too, right? And, and the purpose of studying scripture is so that we know what we know in our heart and in our head, right? They, they go together. We're not just blindly following some teaching or some feeling because you might be heartburn. You know, or it might, you know, it might be something else. <laughs> okay, so very good, thank you. So, okay, so here's some good news, though, right? In light of them rejecting, the rejection of the Messiah is not total. Has God rejected his people? By no means, right? So, um, Israel still the chosen people of God? And so now Paul's going to go through some proofs of that. And the first proof he gives is that he himself is a Jew, and yet he's what? A believer, yes. right? So being a Jew, has God forgotten Israel, the Jews? No, Paul's a Jew, and he's a believer, right? That's a first proof right there. So someone read 1B, if you would. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So he was an Israelite? He was the seed of Abraham. He was the tribe of Benjamin. A Jew among Jews is a Jew is a Jew, right? There's no escaping it. He's not anything but a Jew as far as the definition is. Israelite, seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, right? So like I said, the fact that he's a believer demonstrates that God is not finished with Jews, right? Um, if God truly rejected his people, no Jew would be saved. It's that simple, right? If, if God truly rejected his people, no Jew would be saved. The very fact that at least one Jew is saved is proof that God is not done with Israelites, right? Or done with his people, right? And that's just one. I mean, you, Peter, John, James, all the apostles, all the new... All, at Acts 2, who was saved? All Jews, right? All Jews, so although the Jewish people were rebellious and disobedient, they were still God's people. Read verse 2a, if you would. 
God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So God has not rejected his people whom he what? He foreknew, yeah. right? So his, his sovereign and relationship to Israel was foreknowledge. He knew. He, like I said, he wasn't surprised. He wasn't like, oh, shoot, we've got to come up with plan B, you know. He chose the people in spite of his foreknowledge that they would reject his son, right? They, he knew it, right? But that was what we learned. That foreknowledge pleased him because it opened it up to the Gentiles, right? And as a result, we are that wild olive branch grafted in, which we're going to talk about shortly, I think, if we get there. Um, so God foreknew them and chose them to be his possession. He had a covenantal relationship with them, right? He made all the covenants with them. Because of his commitment to them, he can't reject them. And like I said, the covenants he gave to them, there were four unconditional ones, and then the Mosaic Law was a conditional one, but the Mosaic Law has been rendered inoperative. And so he, meaning that unconditional, means that it wasn't conditioned upon Israel's obedience to follow the covenants or the contract. contract so the God we serve limits his behavior, limits his his foreknowledge, limits his divine attributes to behave according to this contract. When he makes a contract, the creator is making a contract with the creation. That's reducing his divinity in a sense of limiting his behavior to this contract, right? He willfully did that, and he says, I'm going to do this regardless of what you do. Are we following that? Not. I don't want to say he reduced his divinity, but he limited his behavior within that divinity because he's God. He could do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, and he'd be justified because he's God. Right? He defines those things. Okay, so because of his commitment to them, he can't reject them. Okay, so verses 2b through 10, Paul addresses another objection. So, you know, basically saying while he and he being a Jew and some others being a Jew do believe in the Messiah, uh, believe in the Messiah. The majority of Israel doesn't, right? The majority of Israel doesn't believe, and that's still true to this day. But Paul will show uh, um, what is true of Israel today has always been true, right? Because Israel has always been a nation in disobedience. But what do we know? What do we know that even in disobedience, there's always a what? Remnant. A remnant, right? There's always been a remnant. Because he made that point in Romans 2.29 and 9.6. Remember, he distinguished between all Israel and of Israel. Remember we talked about that? The nation of Israel and then within the Israel within Israel are the remnant. They're of Israel. Um, so he's going to make this same point. Um, so basically the whole the whole of Israel as a nation is, is un, in unbelief and rejects the Messiah. Christ as the Messiah, but this is not new. This rejection of God's plan and God's provision is not new. Throughout history, they've been an unbelieving nation, and they've been, you know, many of the Old Testament books are about that, right? Prophets come and say, you're forgetting your place, you're forgetting who, who you worship, you're forgetting, who, you're forgetting who you are, and yet you're going into disobedience, so God sends a prophet to try to remind them to come back. Come back, come back, come back, right? Um, so those Jews, or all Israel, are, are basically unbelieving Jews that are just Jews on the outward and not on the inward, right? Remember we talked about circumcision of the heart versus circumcision, right? Um, but the believing remnant 
of the Jews or of Israel has, is both outward and inward circumcised. So he's going to use Elijah. Paul's going to use Elijah as an example of this proof. So read 2b through 4, if you would, of chapter 11. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, so just as a side note, the story of Elijah is in 1 Kings chapter 19. Um, so does the context two chapters before right King Ahab had attacked uh, and killed the prophets of God right all these prophets Elijah was left but but now Elijah has slaughtered the prophets of Baal there's a whole scenario it's a pretty fantastic scenario but he's killed all the prophets of Baal right and so Jezebel hears this news and she sends a messenger to Elijah that what you did to all these prophets I'm gonna basically do that to you right so so Elijah kills all of these false prophets, you would think he'd be like victorious and be like, you know, nothing can stop me, overconfident, all these things. He gets a word from Jezebel that I'm going to do what you did to them, I'm going to do to you, and now he's very scared, right? He's, he's timid and he's scared, he doesn't know what to do, um, that he would be killed within 24 hours by Jezebel. And so he, go, he goes to the wilderness and he's moaning, right? He's sort of weeping and saddened and has no confidence of what God just did through him, right? It wasn't him who did those things. God through him did those things, right? And so he's, he's in sorrow because he thinks he's the only one left. Like nobody believes. I'm the only one here, God. What's going on? You know, so he has this, he has this breakdown, this, this emotional breakdown in a sense. And since he was convinced he was the only one believer left, um, but what does God do? God assures him and comforts him um, in a little whirlwind, right? A still small voice, right? He was working out a plan for Israel, and he says that Elijah was not alone, right? There were 7,000 others that Elijah did not know about. So 7,000 believers in a whole nation, it's not a lot, right? Maybe there was a million people. So 7,000 is not a whole lot, but it's a people. It's a remnant, right? It's a small group. But it proves Paul's point, right? Paul's point is that even though unbelief is more common, right? It's not total. It's not universal among the Jews. Is it unbelief more common in Gentiles? By far, right? By far. I mean, maybe 0.01% of Gentiles are actual true believers, part of the church, right? So the point that Paul is making, even though the nation is in unbelief, there's a remnant. So Paul's making that point that even though the nation has rejected the Messiah, there's a, a remnant. There's a people group that is still following God's provision. So read verse 5. Chosen by grace. So he's saying what was true then during Elijah's time is true now, right? The remnant existed in the past, still exists in the present, still exists in our present to this day, right? 
So just as God had left a believing remnant for him in Elijah's time, there's a, an existing remnant in this time and his time, right? It's always been the case, only a minority believe. But the very existence of that minority or that remnant proves that God has not rejected Israel, right? You follow Paul's line of reasoning here, right? And how is that remnant chosen? Grace. By grace, by like everything else. How are you chosen? Grace. By grace, right? Are you choosing God according to Romans? No, we see the predestination, the election. I, that's a hard thing to grasp. I'm not going to pretend at all. That's a hard thing to grasp. All I can say is thank you, Lord, for choosing me, right? That's all I can really say. But that's, when you, when you think about it bigger than that, you say, well, of course, because he's God, right? It's like we said, can the pot say to the potter, what did you do this for? <laughs> you know, why did you do that? So he has that ability. So, okay, verse 6, read verse 6 if you would, please. And if by Other gra otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, right? So as far as salvation is concerned, law and grace, or works and faith, are completely opposite from one another, right? We say that grace will produce in you what? Works. Grace will produce in you work. You receive grace by faith. You receive grace. As a result of your position, your reasonable response is, I'm going to do works, right? And, and remember we talked about how the, the works you thought were really good, even if they were fantastic works, meant nothing to God. But, but now that you're saved, the works that you do mean something to God, right? They are valuable to God because they're done by faith in His grace to you. Yeah? Okay, so... You know what you were saying about grace... I was listening to an interview. I can't think of her name, but she was an actress back in the 80s, maybe, who's dying of breast cancer. And they were interviewing her. And just as calm and confident as a cucumber, she was talking about not being afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die. I know where I'm going. And she said, I'm a good person. I do all kinds of good things for people. And she was just saying everything, you know, works, 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 works. And she said, when I close my eyes and take my last breath and God looks at me, how can he not let me in because of everything that I've done? <laughs> and, I was, and she was just so calm and confident about that. And that was her religion, right? Yes. Her her yeah. belief system led her to think that. Right. But there's so many people that are so confident in that, and there there's no fear of death because they just. Yeah. Well, it's like we were saying before that when you compare yourselves to other sinners, you look pretty good. You know, because you generally pick the sinners who you look good next to, right? <laughs> You're going to find the Hitler or the, you know, the Stalins, all these whatever. It's easy to do that, but they can't save you. Not about that. There's a um, prominent uh, political official that uh, was talking years ago talking about his faith in Christianity and things. And then somebody asked him, 
Have you ever asked forgiveness for anything? He goes, nope. <laughs> so it makes, you, it makes you wonder. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, I think that's a good place to stop, right? Verse, so we finish at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What's grace? Anybody know what grace is? It's receiving a gift that you don't deserve. Receiving a gift you don't deserve, right? And so you've gotten something that you didn't earn or deserve, right? And mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. What you do deserve, right? Yeah. And we, we need both. <laughs> we desperately need both, right? All right, so let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you, Lord, in and, and gratitude because you've given us grace, Lord. You've given us what we don't deserve, and that's eternal life, Lord. That's giving us righteousness. You've, you've declared us to be righteous. You've justified us. In spite of our sinfulness, you've declared us to be righteous. So let us live and think and act as though we can be righteous and are righteous in your eyes and so we ask lord that you would that by faith the way that you gave us grace and justified us you are giving us sanctification you are setting us apart you are making consecrating us to be more holy to be more like you and lord we ask that you would increase our faith in that that we would trust that you are working in our hearts and working in our minds and working in our lives to do that Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would just continue to give us a hunger and thirst to know your word. Knowing your word is knowing you and that we would rightly understand you so that we would not formulate an idol or a false pretense about you, but that, Lord, we would know you as you are. So we ask, Lord, that you would continue to illuminate your word to us and help us to understand it. We also ask for discernment in this confusing world that we would be able to recognize what is good and bad and true and false and right or wrong. And Lord, we pray that as the, in the worship service of church, that you would be pleased with our corporate worship to you. And Lord, that we thank you for the fellowship and thank you for the, the understanding, the exhortation that we have with one another, and that the gifts that you've given to each one of us would be used, Lord, and that we would be a more sound body here. Uh, we love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.